Om Namah Shivaya. Salutations to that prince amongst all those who renounce. Vivekananda Suraye, that Sura, that great God, that Rishi, who is the embodiment of existence, consciousness, and bliss. Salutations to that Swami Vivekananda. May all of this be an offering. Om, peace, peace, peace. Thank you, Bhavani Devi. Jai, Bhavani Jiki, Jai. Thank you for that beautiful, beautiful rendition of the Lalita Sasranam. So having invited Mother, it's now time for us to make an offering of sorts. I want to talk about something very, very edgy. I mean, as if last week wasn't edgy enough. Remember last week, we looked at a few lectures that Swami Vivekananda gave in San Francisco. And they were uh, perhaps some of the most intoxicatingly non-dual lectures that Swami Vivekananda gave, not just in America, but I think anywhere really. And in the 1900s, he gave a series of lectures and we read maybe three or four of them last week, I think. And a few of these, they appear in volume eight of Swami Vivekananda Complete Works by the Advaita Ashrama. But in volume two, there are also a few 1900s lectures that are presented at the very beginning of the volume. You know, the first one is The Secret Work and Its Secret, I think. And that was given on January 4th, I think in Pasadena, but here in Los Angeles, it was given. And the second one is the power or the powers of the mind or something like that, which was given on January 8th here in Los Angeles. So those two lectures have in them some ideas that are so incendiary that I want to talk to you about them a little bit today. We're going to talk about the very highest jnana yoga. Because today I thought we'd call the lecture something like how to jnana like Vivekananda, something like that. Because jnana yoga, it's it seems like one of the most important dimensions of Vivekananda's teachings. And insofar as he teaches other things, Raja Yoga, Bhakti Yoga, Karma Yoga, all of these things that he felt were equally important in his non-hierarchical evaluation of all the four yogas as four means of spiritual attainment, it seems like to each and every one of these other yogas, he brought that element of jnana. He gave a non-dual jnana interpretation of bhakti. And he gave a non-dual jnana interpretation of karma over anything else. Karma was redefined by Vivekananda in a unique way, unheard of before. And um, he gave a new understanding of Raja Yoga. And all of that comes from his central understanding of jnana and how it is to be understood and practiced. So today, I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that I want to speak to you about the very highest. I want to tell you the truth as Vivekananda told it. And I want to say it with such force through the grace of Swamiji that we come to feel it to the very core of our being, that our very blood will tingle with the power and potency of what Vivekananda came to teach. Now, the reason we're having this discussion is twofold. One, because it was just Vivekananda's birthday weekend. And as, as I was saying in the satsang prior to this one, the pre-satsang satsang, the pre-talk talk, there we were talking about how the whole weekend was full of celebration to Swami Vivekananda, saturated with devotion to Vivekananda, studying Vivekananda's works. His birthday was on February 2nd this year, the Jayanti, the... Uh, anniversary, the birth anniversary was celebrated on February 2nd. We had our big puja at the Hollywood temple yesterday. And so we're all still in that bar. Um, more importantly, though, it's not Vivekananda's life, I think, that he would have wanted us to obsess about. It's his message. You know, he once said in one place that if you worship me, I will come back as a ghost and break your neck. Because <laughs> he, he didn't want this kind of like hero worship, you know. He didn't want that we should sit here and fawn over his greatness. Rather, he would have wanted that we become great ourselves. He wouldn't have wanted us to become Vivekanandas. He would want us to be Chakreshwaras and Bhavani Devis. You know, he would want us to be our, ourselves and stand tall and strong in the divinity that is our birthright and, and express that divinity each in our own unique way. That's what he wanted. And so the ideas are more important, I think. But his person was important too insofar as, the living, as it was a living embodiment and manifestations of those ideas. So if you want to see how those ideas are actually um, 
lived out. Then we looked at the lives of great masters like Vivekananda, of course, Sarada Devi above all, and of course, Sri Ramakrishna. And you know, in one place, Srivananda, I think he says to somebody, it would be enough if you just study our lives. Rather than studying the Upanishads or the Gita, it would be enough to study our lives. Because each and every one of them demonstrated in their life the lived principles that you find in the Gita, in the Upanishads, in the Tantra Shastra, like that. So of course the lives are important. The personalities are important. The way these people lived can be deeply nourishing and inspiring to all of us. But I want to focus today um, on the ideas. And more than just the ideas, a direct experience of the truth to which these words point. That's the main goal of today's lecture. You see, above all, Swami Vivekananda... Um, prioritize direct experience as the foundation and basis of all true spirituality. That was one of his first and maybe most important messages that he delivered to the West. When he came here, he was, as I said on Friday, we had a lecture on Friday also about Swami Vivekananda's life, legacy, and teachings. And there we were talking about his message to the West. He said, you know, as Buddha had a message for the East, I have a message for the West. What was that message? Of course, it was very multifaceted, um, very variegated. But I think at bottom, at its core, was one emphasis, uh, three emphasis, actually. The, the oneness of all existence, the innate divinity of the soul, all of that we talked about on Friday. But the one I want to highlight right now at the beginning of this lecture is the importance of direct experience in religious life, in spiritual life. He said it was not enough to simply buy into a dogma or a creed or believe in words, however well they might have been spoken. What is needed is experience. I must experience for myself directly, firsthand, the truths which all the great masters have experienced before me um, and from which they spoke and wrote and expressed themselves. So that truth is our birthright. It's the common property of every man, woman, and child everywhere. No matter what the color of your skin is or what religion you belong to or what practices you're doing, you should have an experience of your faith. You know, in other words, if there is a God, I should be able to see him. That was Swami Vivekananda's claim. And if there is a soul, I should be able to feel it. Unless I can see it and feel it and verify it for myself, then it can't really in any sense be called spirituality. So giving spirituality a scientific basis, a rational basis, um, a foundation in verificationism, observationism, like that. That was very important. That was one of Swami Vivekananda's central messages. So in keeping with that today, it's not enough that we just talk. We must feel. These ideas must direct us in our own experience to the truth. And from that point on, we should live in accordance with that truth. That's the goal of today's discussion. Live was that in praise of the goddess? Yeah, I love that book. Yeah, it's a great book. Yeah. I miss our, um, our, all of our chandi fervor during Navaratri. But coming up soon is Gupta Navaratri, right? The, the Chaitra Navaratri, the spring Navaratri. So maybe we'll pull out the chandi and have a few more classes on it again. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I want to talk about today. Swami Vivekananda's Jnana. Not only the teaching, but how to live it, how to apply it, how to actually practice Jnana Yoga as per Swami Vivekananda's instruction. So to that end, I want to read you a lecture, another controversial lecture from San Francisco. It's kind of incendiary, so be careful. It's, it's pretty edgelord. It's like really going to kind of confront you. And it's called From the Soul. It's from, from the soul. So it's called The Soul and God. And so we'll read that in a little bit. Yes, and you'll see, oh my God, just how powerful and exalted it is. He says, don't say God. Don't say thou. Say I. Isn't that interesting? It's a very different approach to spirituality and religion. And for those of us who are more devotionally bent, it can be a little bit of an affront, a little bit confrontational. But I want to read you that, that speech and then apply it to bhakti and show you why this idea actually gives the highest and most exalted and perhaps the most sincerest form of bhakti. Most sincere? Sorry, the sincerest. The most sincere? Yes, the best form of bhakti. And to that end, I want to speak to you about Mother Kali and how Mother Kali fits into all of this. We said a few things about it last week in our lecture on Swami Vivekananda's edgiest non-dual teachings. Today, I think we can ground it in more Shakta philosophy. I want to talk to you about the cremation grounds and um, Aghora Sadhana and how all of that... Um, that bhav, 
is expressed by Swami Vivekananda. I'll tell you a story about him facing some monkeys and all of that. That's coming up. So that's where, where this lecture is headed. I just wanted to flag it here in the beginning so you know what's coming. But another reason why we should have this discussion is it twofold. We're having this discussion for two reasons. One, because um, Swamiji's birthday passed recently. But another reason is because today is a very special day. Again, as I was saying in the satsang, you guys, seriously, it's starting to feel like I've given the lecture already in the satsang prior to the satsang, then I need to really control myself and not say anything about the lecture then just so I can save it. Now, for those of you who are there, sorry for the repetition. Like I was saying in the previous gathering, um, today is also a very special day because it's the 10th day of the, the Krishna Paksha waning fortnight of the moon in the month of Pauche. So the waning moon, the dark fortnight, this is the 10th day of that. And Abhinava Gupta composed on this day, the Bhairava Stava, which he sang on his last day on earth. So the legend has it that Abhinava Gupta, having composed the Bhairava Stava in 1993, later on, when he was going to pass away, he walked into a cave with a few disciples singing the song and he was never heard of again, at least not on this plane. He vanished into the darkness of the mountain, going back into the primordial womb, going into Mahasamadhi probably, going into the cave to sit and meditate and thereby, I don't know, maybe they all vanished and went somewhere else. So who knows what happened in that cave? I don't think his body was ever recovered really. But they all went into the cave and disappeared and he was singing this song as his kind of outro music as he was leaving this plane. So it's a devotional song and it's addressed to Bhairava. It's addressed to Lord Shiva. It's in the second person. And all throughout the song, sometimes he's talking to Shiva. Other times he seems to be talking to the angel of death. He's saying, angel of death, don't look at me with those krodha, angry and karala, terrifying eyes. He's talking to the angel of death sometimes. He's talking to Shiva sometimes. And he seems to be talking to you sometimes. And that's the interesting thing. For him, all these three things, the angel of death, Shiva, you, they're all one and the same reality. And that real- reality is co-extensive with his very own self. Tvam cha mahesha sadaiva mamatma. You and I, Shiva, are ever one. Sada eva mamatma. This Atman, this self, and you, Shiva, are one. Such a powerful non-dual statement, but expressed in a devotional language. To God, who he recognizes as none other than his very own self, manifest everywhere, all the time, as everyone and everything. It's a profound and very beautiful expression of Abhinava Gupta's exalted non-dual philosophy, all in the context of worship of Lord Bhairava. But another thing that's quite special about that poem is its very frequent reference to terror and disgust and things that often evoke a sense of aversion in us, especially if you come from a puritanical Brahmin background. The idea of the smashan, the cremation ground, and all the inauspicious things therein. Abhinava Gupta is constantly referring to it throughout the poem and telling us that this too is Shiva, this too is Shiva. All this is divine. There's no such thing as holy or unholy, auspicious or inauspicious. It's all sacred. This entire world is not a world at all, but in truth, God and God alone. And that bhav, that bhav of fearlessness, of exalted devotion that can only come from the non-dual experience, that bhav in Abhinava Gupta, I think, matches one-to-one the bhav that we find in Vivekananda. So today I want to do something. I want to talk through Vivekananda's ideas so that we can have an actual experience of not only Jnana Yoga, but how to practice it, but all the while referencing this Bhairava Stava of Abhinava Gupta, somehow trying my best, to what degree will succeed, God only knows, to interweave some of the Bhairava Stava ideas into the narrative thread of today's Vivekananda lecture, so at once we can commemorate Vivekananda Jayanti, as well as the commemoration of the Bhairava Stava, 1031st, I think, since 1993, so 1031st year of, <laughs> it's kind of a, complex and I hope intricate 
lecture, if I may say so myself. Let's try. Let's see. I might fall flat on my face trying to do this, but let's try. Vivekananda's central message on Guyana and how to practice it, as well as Abhinava Gupta's Bhairavastava. Let's see how much of this we can cover. Okay, so let's plunge in. That was a preamble. <laughs> let's start. So maybe I should start by reading to you this lecture. Now, this lecture he gave, probably to a smaller group. I don't know for sure. I know in San Francisco, he was in the Unitarian Church giving lectures to something like 2,000 people. 500 people would be turned away at a time. But I think he also had smaller gatherings in like the Home of Truth, which was a kind of new age community, a bit like new thoughts back then, you know, like spiritualism, like kind of faith healing, Christian science, like that kind of thing. Like they had a small like new age situation and he gave a few lectures there too so maybe this lecture was given to many people or a few people i don't think it matters too much but the ideas in this lecture are pretty as i said before incendiary so brace yourself here we go we're going to plunge right in and this lecture was given in 1900s probably in san francisco i think i think for sure in san francisco it's called the soul and god i'm just going to read to you a little excerpt from it and then we'll talk about it a little bit so anyway hello everyone it's nice to see you so sometimes I like to just, before I begin the lecture, having done all the preamble, I just like to go to the gallery mode for a moment and just see everyone, see Liv and see Peggy and there's Brent and Helen and just, oh, Zaz is there and Leah is there, Tripti Devi, and, oh, it's hello Brooke and BG, is Brian, so BG, I, I just saw him, no? Hey, there's Cassandra, welcome Cassandra, I think you're new to us, so hello. <laughs> I can't hear you. You're unmuted. You're talking, but I don't hear you. Can you hear? Yeah. <gasps> okay, in the chat. <laughs> That's too bad. But hi, Cassandra. Hey, there's BG. There's Ryan. What's up, brother? Good to see you, Prabhu. Jericho. Yes. Welcome, welcome. Lakshmi Devi. Good, good. So it's nice to see you. Oh, hey, Jericho. What time is it in Australia? It's like bright. It's 2.30 p.m. on Tuesday. Okay, that's not too bad. Some of the East Coasters are like, I think I'm going to go to Stryo because there I can take these lectures at 2.30 and not like 10 at night. <laughs> Very right. What's that? I've got it easy today. Yeah. <laughs> well, I appreciate all of you coming. And thank you, Bhavani Devi, again. Times a million for, you know, the new tradition of chanting Lalita Sahasranama before we began. It's very special to me. Okay. <laughs> yes. You know, they said like, like there was like that whole thing about the world is going to end. And then they said, no, it, it didn't end because it's already tomorrow in Australia and they're doing fine. <laughs> so, the world didn't end. Okay. So, <laughs> oh, wonderful. Thank you, Cassandra. Welcome, welcome. So let's begin. Now I'll read you the lecture and then we'll talk about it a little bit. And again, be forewarned. It's pretty strong language, pretty powerful. I think it's nothing but the truth. So here we go. Do not say God. Do not say God. Do not say thou. Say, I, the language of dualism, says God, thou my father. The language of non-dualism says, dearer unto me than I am myself. I would have no name for thee. The nearest I can use is I. God is true. The universe is a dream. Blessed am I that I know this moment, that I have been and shall be free for all eternity, that I know that I am worshipping only myself, that no nature, no delusion had any hold on me. Vanish nature from me, vanish these gods, vanish worship, vanish superstitions, for I know myself. I am the infinite. All these Mrs. So-and-so and Mr. So-and-so, responsibility, happiness, misery have vanished. I am the infinite. 
How can there be death for me or birth? Whom shall I fear? I am the one. Shall I be afraid of myself? Who is to be afraid of whom? I am the one existence. Nothing else exists. I am everything. It is only a question of remembering your true nature. And I want to emphasize that. Swami Vivekananda is saying here, it is only a matter of remembering your true nature. It's only a question of remembering your true nature. It is not salvation by work. Do you get salvation? You are already free. Go on saying, I am free. Never mind if the next moment delusion comes and says, I am bound. Dehypnotize the whole thing. Okay, I want to pause here and maybe say a few things about what Swami Vivekananda has offered thus far. So strong language. He's speaking against this attitude of devotion, it seems like, from a dualistic point of view. And instead, he's inviting what seems to be a uniquely non-dual version of devotion. So it's not like he's getting rid of devotion altogether. He's recontextualizing devotion in the framework of non-duality. So let's talk about that for a few moments. Now, interestingly, he's making a case here for what today gets called the direct path where it's not a question of salvation by work. That is through effort or through a progress or through some kind of time-bound temporal evolutionary sequence. He's saying it's really just here and now possible for all of us to recognize the truth and thereby be free. Know the truth and the truth will set you free, the Christ would say. you know. So th- this truth is to be remembered. It's to be recognized. It's not to be got through some kind of work or through some kind of effort. So he's making this claim that today we would say, is privileging the direct path over the progressive path. So I want to qualify that a little bit because Swami Vivekananda was very big into meditation. He was a master of meditation. He was a great bhakta who composed beautiful songs, you know, profound songs to all manner of deities and especially Shiva and Shakti. What beautiful songs he composed for the Divine Mother, Ambe Sotram. We just sang Shiva Stuti. You know, prior to this, we sang the, sang the Shiva Stotram by, 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 by Vivekananda. And what a beautiful and exalted uh, devotional sentiment it was. So then how can such a great bhakta make a claim like this? And how can such a great meditator make a claim like this? And above all, how can such a great karmi, a great worker, a, a force in the world make a claim that seems so profoundly non-dualistic? You know, how can karma, bhakti, and raja fit into jnana? That's something we ought to talk about. So before we begin, I just want to say Shankara has a kind of hierarchical understanding of all of this. You know, so what Vivekananda is saying is that it's not a question of working out your salvation. It's not a question of meditating until you're free or doing amount of karma, a certain amount of karma yoga until you recognize your inherent non-attachment. It's not really even about devotion or praying to this or that God. He says, don't say God. Don't say thou. Say I. You see, he seems to be speaking against the progressive path in all of its forms. Now, Shankara also to some extent does this, but he does this in a kind of hierarchical way. In Shankara's approach to Jnana Yoga, he privileges it as the highest and the best of all the yogas, but you can't go to it direct. Some people can. There are some people, because of their past karmas or because of a certain predisposition in this life, take to Jnana Yoga right away and succeed through Jnana, Jnana Yoga right away. But for most of us, um, some preparations are required so that the mind is pure enough to hear what the Upanishads are saying. You know, because if you present this knowledge to someone, chances are it will go right over our heads. Or even if we understand it, we won't be able to implement it because the mind is not pure enough to live according to the truth, mostly because it's not pure enough to see the truth as it is. You see, so what Shankara suggests is Jnana Yoga is the ultimate, it's the only thing that can save you. And why he gives this understanding, he says, you know, the problem is ignorance. A lot of this comes with the framing of the problem. The reason you suffer, the problem, is that you are ignorant of your true nature. Ignorance is the problem. And if ignorance is the problem, it cannot be solved by action or devotion or meditation. 
Uh, by meditation, I mean concentration. Because if you are in ignorance, a concentrated mind won't fix that. You'll just be concentratedly in ignorance. You know, if you are in ignorance, a devotional heart won't fix that. You'll be full of devotion, but probably a lot of fanaticism and sentimentality will come too. You'll be devotedly ignorant. You'll be an ignoramus, but a devoted ignoramus, right? But an ignoramus, no less. Now, Harma Yoga, oh my God, there is nothing worse for the world, I think, than people doing action in ignorance. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. So you go out and do a bunch of work, but you, yeah, right, Peggy? And you do it from a place of ignorance and you think you're helping everyone and really you're making things worse for them. You know, you want to civilize the brutes and so you begin your colonization project. I don't doubt that it's on some level, there's some good intention there, but notice ignorance and work is a dangerous combination. So it's like some people say, don't just do something, sit there. Because <laughs> if you just run about the world and, you know, do this or do that in ignorance, you're going to harm yourself and others. So what Shankara suggests, Jnana, because if ignorance is the problem, the opposite of ignorance is knowledge. And only the opposite of something can be its antidote. That's kind of the logical claim here. So if the problem is ignorance, the solution is knowledge. Knowledge is the, the whole thing. So all you need now is an insight, a flash of recognition. You have to remember what you are. And the Upanishads will tell you. And Shankara will carefully um, compose prakarana grantas. He will compose primers and manuals to approach the Upanishads that you may get the truth, or at least in his interpretation. And that's Shankara Vedanta or Shankara Advaita. And that has a hierarchical understanding. So it's not that karma, raja, and bhakti have no place. They do, but as preparatory disciplines. So here's how it works. You come to jnana, but if you find that you just don't get it or it's just not working, chances are it's because your mind is distracted. There is what is called um, vikshepa. Vikshepa means distraction or turbulence on the level of the mind, on the level of the chitta. It's only a very tranquil, pure and calm mind that can take to Upanishads, that can take to the Vedanta. Because for such a mind, this idea will work like lightning. You'll immediately get it. You will immediately see that it's true. You'll immediately feel that it's true. And then you're, the question of living up to that is, you know, from that point on, there's no question of it. Because, you know, you feel it to be true, you can live according to that. No problem. But the reason we don't feel it to be true, the reason it's not immediately apparent to us, is because the mind is distracted. That's the way it is with most of us. We know that we are Brahman. We know that we're not the body. We know, we know we're not the mind. And yet we forget the very next moment. Why? Because the mind no longer in our Kali Yuga, especially, it no longer has the ability to stay with an idea. The moment we give the idea, you take it and you drop it the very next moment. Because the mind is not good at holding something and holding to something. Right? So even if you have the ideal, chances are you'll forget it. Or chances are, even if you try to remember it, you won't be able to hold fast to it. The mind is just too shaky, too unstable. So what is the solution then? Yoga, Raja Yoga. Raja Yoga means meditation. If the, if the problem is vikshepa, scattered mind, the solution then is ekagra, chitta ekagra, which means one-pointed mind. And you get one-pointed mind through meditation. Now, by the way, I'm not speaking from the point of view of yoga Vedanta, which I'm very partial to. In the yoga Vedanta tradition, we say um, you have to have nirvikalpa samadhi because in nirvikalpa samadhi only do you have the feeling that you are not the body, not the mind. It's only in that exalted state of absorbed meditation that you can actually really feel yourself as, as Brahman, not as body and mind. So Sri Ramakrishna Paramahansa, he studied Advaita Vedanta with Totapuri, who was very much part of this yoga Vedanta school. And that school really privileges meditation and particularly the experience in meditation called Nirvikalpa Samadhi as articulated by Patanjali in his Yoga Sutra. Okay? But in the more traditional Advaita Vedanta sort of Shankara camp, you know, it's not like that. The idea is you're not meditating for Nirvikalpa Samadhi, not necessarily. Um, no experience is going to liberate you, but it can be helpful 
for the jnana that will come after this. So you practice meditation, you get ekagra, one-pointedness, and then you apply that concentrated mind to jnana. See, the Buddha was primarily a jnani. What he had to teach was jnana yoga, but he really emphasized meditation because according to him, you need the shamatha mind, the tranquil mind to be able to really understand it. You know, once you have that mind, this stuff will really hit, they say. Otherwise, it's just going to be like, eh, you know. <laughs> or even if it hits, it won't really be applied. So the problem is, vikshepa, uh, the solution is ekagra. So you do meditation. But if even that doesn't work, then you need some bhakti. Because if you can't keep your mind fixed on something, you need something that you naturally love in order to be able to focus on it. So you can think of Raja Yoga and Bhakti as kind of going hand in hand. The best thing to focus on in your meditation is your Ishtadevata. Because your Ishtadevata is most adorable and most lovely and most appealing to you. So it's a very natural thing to take a mantra from a teacher, to recite that mantra as you meditate on your you know, Ishta. And through that, you'll naturally get Ekagra. Right? But then if the mind, let's say you start meditating, but if that doesn't work, what happens? You sit down to meditate, but even that doesn't work. You can't meditate. The mind is too turbulent. Then what do you need? Then you take one step back and you say, okay, what's the problem? Distraction. But why is the mind distracted? Because of mala, impurity. And really by impurity here is meant vasana, desire. The, what is called impurity is just the outward nature of the mind, the externalized, extroversive nature of the mind. The reason we can't meditate is because the moment we sit down to do it, the mind wants to run after sense objects beyond the meditation. So you'll be kicked out of your seat by the powerful desire for the world. See, it's very hard to sit down and meditate if there are still desires in the world. So to this, we say bhakti yoga is a powerful antidote because our love goes towards finite things. We love to love. But our problem is not with loving. Our problem is with loving finite things. So Bhakti Yoga teaches us to give a Godward turn to our loving. So instead of loving this and that and things that will ultimately dissatisfy us, instead we can deepen our love and redirect our love towards that one infinite um, God. So this Bhakti Yoga changes our appetites. It moves us away from the world. We start to love Kirtan. We love um, Sadhu Sangha. And we love spiritual literature. We start to love things that make the mind calm. Whereas the things in the world make the mind agitated. So if you love those things, naturally meditation is going to be very difficult. But if you love um, godly things, like spiritual things, then the mind will naturally be calm. And you can try this. You can listen to a kirtan. Like sit for 10 minutes and listen to that rendition of the Laita Sahasranama by Bhavani Devi. See what happens. You'll be calm. Just you felt it earlier, right? The mind settles. But then you listen to like a pop song or something. Not to say that it's not good. I'm the first one to praise any rock song, especially. But you know, sometimes the mind gets a bit agitated, entertained, no doubt, but a little agitated afterwards. And it sometimes can create even desires in us because the song is usually about worldly desires. So in, in that sense, bhakti can give you that quiescence, which you can then apply in meditation, which you can then bring to jnana yoga. But even short of bhakti, what if that love for the divine is not coming? Then karma yoga, then go do work. And by karma yoga, usually these people have in mind Vedic ritualism. It's not like Bhagavad Gita level karma yoga or Vivekananda karma yoga. Gita actually reinterprets, reinterprets karma and Vivekananda reinterprets it a second time. But in the most traditional sense of the word karma yoga, like Shankara and Ramanuja sense of the word, really it means Vedic ritualism. You do your rituals and through your rituals, you come to have love for God. So if you don't yet love God, well, do puja every day. If you do puja every day, sooner or later, you'll come to have a taste for God, a natural kind of devotion to God. And then through that devotion, you'll get meditation. And through that meditation, you'll finally have the kind of mind that is ready for jnana. This is a hierarchicalist understanding, you see, privileging jnana yoga at the very top and showing that all these others are valuable, but only insofar as your preparatory disciplines. So, so much for Shankara. Ramanuja, you know, he almost says, Shankara, you can turn a ladder and it will work just the same. 
<laughs> so uh, Ramanuja, what he does is he turns the ladder upside down. He says, no, it's not that Jnana Yoga is the highest. Jnana Yoga is preliminary. Bhakti is the highest. But again, more of this hierarchicalization, you see. Ramanuja says, Bhakti Yoga is the highest, where Shankara privileged the Nirguna aspect of God, the formless principle aspect of God. Ramanuja favored the personal aspect of God, God with form. Not form, sorry, not necessarily. Saguna. It can still be nirakara, formless, but at least with attributes. God the person, not the principle. And insofar that, as that is the ideal, then devotion is the most appropriate and the most valuable. But how do you get devotion? Through jnana. Now, it seems like Vivekananda is not buying into this kind of hierarchicalization. We find in a lot of his early lectures, um, even in Los Angeles before he went to San Francisco, and certainly earlier on in New York on the East Coast, he really tried to show that all the yogas, each in and of themselves, is sufficient for total liberation, which is actually not a claim that anybody before him would make. Even the Bhagavad Gita's version of karma yoga is intimately connected to bhakti yoga. It's about surrendering the fruits of your actions to the Lord, right? But Vivekananda claims that you could be a perfect atheist and still do karma yoga and still become liberated which is an interesting and novel claim, I think. So Vivekananda might be the first one, I think, ever to show that these four paths are not only each in and of themselves and unto themselves, efficient um, means for total liberation and the liberation you get is equally high in all of these paths, but also that they can be used in tandem. Prior to Vivekananda, a lot of the ideas around these paths was that they could be only walked exclusively. In Shankara's case, once you start Jnana Yoga, you must stop meditating actually. Because the more you meditate, the more you're affirming to yourself the distinction between you and the object of meditation. And certainly you must drop devotion. And certainly you must drop action. You know, all of these things, especially action, all of these things, ritualism, karma kanda of the Vedas, all of these things are lower disciplines. And once you start jnana yoga, you should stop these things. So too with Ramanuja. Once you've gotten some level of purity through jnana and karma, you should stop those things and start doing bhakti yoga. That's the highest yoga. Vivekananda never gave into that kind of hierarchicalism. For him, each of the paths were good, and more importantly, they could all be used in tandem. There's this old idea in India that if you are a bhakta, jnana yoga will harm your bhakti. You know? And you know, Sri Ramakrishna himself protected some people from jnana. He felt like some people had a devotional nature, so he didn't like for them to like read books like Ashtavakara Gita. When, when, when Ramakrishna wanted to teach Vivekananda the Ashtavakara Gita, he brought Narin into a room and like locked the door and had Naren read the, uh, the Ashtavakara Gita to him. He didn't, want, he didn't let anybody else read that book because he felt like those ideas might be damaging to their bhakti. Hmm? And even Vivekananda, he heartily resisted that Ashtavakara Gita in the beginning. He thought the rishis who composed these non-dual ideas were mad, he said. He went so far as to call them kind of mad to say that a pot is God and the door is God and the cup is God like that. You know, God is God, not all these objects. And how can God be a limited, finite object like that? You have to remember, Vivekananda was a bhakta at heart. You know, he started out in the Brahmo Samaj as a strong and musically inclined devotee of the formless personal God. And it was with great reluctance that he absorbed and assimilated the non-dual, very strongly Advaitic ideas that Ramakrishna Paramahansa impressed upon him in the beginning of their training together. And interestingly, Ramakrishna gave him certain experiences. And we talked about those last week. And those experiences turned him into an Advaita Vedantin. And then, as I said last week, Sri Ramakrishna seems to have put in the finishing touch when he made him a Kali Bhakta. And now I'm going to argue that the devotion to Kali has a uniquely non-dual flavor. Not necessarily, but possibly. There's a certain kind of devotion to Kali that can only come from a non-duality, which I'm going to try to argue for the time that we have left in this lecture. So um, what happens to Vekananda is he becomes an Advaitin, and then he 
has an experience with Kali. And so as a Kali Bhakta, he's now articulating what I think is a uniquely non-dual form of Bhakti. In any case, it was important to me that Ramakrishna took a great interest in Vivekananda's Advaitic training, knowing full well that Vivekananda would come to the West and give his message in front of, you know, literally the entire universe, that, or world at least. I don't want to go so far as to say the universe. That might be too fanatical a claim. But at least to the American people and the British people, like he was to give this message to the West. And so it's important to me that Ramakrishna felt like his foremost disciple and representative should be thoroughly steeped in Advaita. You know, and Ashtavakra Gita is not Advaita for beginners. It's like Ajata Vada kind of Advaita, very radical non-duality. Okay, so let's go back to this passage. I'm going to read it a little bit more. I'm just going to read what I've read thus far and let's say a few words. So from the soul and God, Swamiji says, do not say God, do not say thou, say I. The language of, non, the language of dualism says, God, thou my father. The language of non-dualism says, notice this, this is the language of non-dualism, but it's a bhakti statement. Dearer unto me than I am myself, I would have no name for thee. The nearest I can use is I. Isn't that beautiful? You're nearer unto me and dearer unto me than I am to myself. I have no name for thee. The best I can do is call you I. The self. That's what you are. Okay. God is true. The universe is a dream. Blessed am I that I know this moment, that I have been and shall be free for all eternity, that I know that I am worshipping only myself, that no nature, no delusion had any hold on me. Vanish nature from me, vanish these gods, vanish worship, vanish superstition, for I know myself. I am the infinite. All these, Mrs. So-and-so and Mr. So-and-so, responsibility, happiness, misery, have vanished. I am the infinite. How can there be death for me or birth? Whom shall I fear? I am the one. Shall I be afraid of myself? Who is to be afraid of whom? I am the one existence. Nothing else exists. I am everything. It is only a question of remembering your true nature. It is not salvation by work. Do you get salvation? You are already free. Okay, let's pause here and let's together now try to get an experience of what the good Swami is talking about. Now, Swami Ashokananda in his uh, Vivekananda in San Francisco, Swami Vivekananda in San Francisco booklet, he makes this point that nowhere else did the Swami emphasize Jnana Yoga more than in San Francisco. Even in Los Angeles, in the series of lectures he gave there, shortly before coming to San Francisco at the end of February 1900, um, even there he was a little bit more balanced in talking about all four yogas. But it was in San Francisco that he really gave full tilt to Jnana Yoga. So let's talk a little bit about Jnana Yoga, you know? And then with the time left to me, I want to say how that Jnana Yoga, that understanding can be applied to the other four yogas. Oh, sorry, the other three yogas. Even let's say four yogas, Hatha Yoga also we can, we can put in there. Although it's a subset of Raja Yoga. Okay, let's do this. Let's get an experience now of what the Swami is saying. Remember, he's saying, I am already free. I am everything. I am the one existence. And that is called God. You know, and there's no other name for God. Shouldn't call God, God or the Father or Thou or anything like that. The best word for God is I, the self for it's already my very own nature. So let's try to feel into this together. And this is, of course, um, a classic meditation, but it never gets old because it's so powerful and so profound. And that flash of recognition never gets old. So let's try to, to have that flash of recognition together now. And we're just going to proceed from the facts. That's what Jnana Yoga asks us to do anyway. Not to take anything on faith, not to try to acquire some kind of 
rarefied or exotic mystical experience, but just to hear and now be honest about what the truth of our experience really is. Just to inquire into the present moment and see what it has to teach us. See, this is why a very open and innocent mind is required because we have to be able to approach this moment without any vikalpas, without any preconceived notions. In other words, we have to innocently look at this moment. Lest he be like a child, the kingdom of heaven is not for thee. Lest he be as little children, you know. So what does a child do? She comes to a situation completely innocently with mind open, ready to learn and see what that moment has to present without any preconceived notions. So like that, we must approach jnana yoga. So right now, here we are having this experience. Let's inquire into the nature of our experience. The first claim is this. When I look at something, say this is a cup, and I'm looking at the cup, the first fact that I must acknowledge is that I, the seer of the cup, am quite a thing apart from the cup itself. And this is even a grammatical and linguistic point. When I say I see a cup, in the simple grammar of that sentence, two things are positive. Well, three things. You can include the verb as one of the three. But two things at least are positive. I, the subject, and the cup, which is the object. So I, the subject, insert verb here, see, smell, taste, hear, touch, insert object here, a cup. I see a cup. Okay, clearly I am not the cup. For if I was the cup, I wouldn't be able to see the cup. And you can prove this even right now in this moment, the eyeballs can see everything within visible sight, that is, within the range of visible sight. It can see everything except for one thing, itself. The eyeballs can see almost everything except itself. I could look into a mirror, of course, but that would be a reflection and not the eyeballs themselves. I could look at a picture of myself. I could look into the zoom screen. I can see the eyeball, but it wouldn't be the eyeball in real time. In real time, the eyeball cannot see itself. The eyeball will never be able to see itself. This is a philosophy like the principle of non-self-reflexivity. A thing cannot do that thing to itself. A knife cannot cut itself. A doorknob cannot turn itself like that. So the eyeball cannot see itself. Similarly, the subject can never see itself. It can never be an object unto itself. So therefore, if I see a cup, I am not a cup. And notice this is the way we live in the world. When a car drives by, I'll say, I see a car. I never say, I am a car. It'd be really weird, actually, if somebody next to you said, hey, I am a car. And then you ask them, why did you just say that? And they say, look, no, you saw a car. That doesn't make you a car. Seeing something and being something are two different things. The moment you see something, you're at least certain of one thing that you're not it. Okay. So now going further, if I am experiencing something, I, the experiencer, am distinct from that experience. So then the only question we have to ask after this is, are you experiencing the body? The mass of sensations that we call a body, is it not an experience, a dynamic experience, a very intimate and, and, and intense experience, no doubt, but an experience nonetheless. I am experiencing the body, the flow of sensations, the river of perceptions that is called the body, that is an experience to me. And since the experiencer and that which is experienced are always different, I, the experiencer, am not this body experience. I'm not the body. Simple as that. To say I am a body would be as ridiculous as saying I am a car. No, I saw a car. It drove by me on the street. What's it to me? Similarly, to say I am a body would be manifestly problematic. I should rather say I experience a body. Like a car driving by, it comes and it goes. What's it to me? Then you could go further. Well, most of us feel this, like we're an embodied mind. You know, we're a mind, a person in a body. 
or that we're like using a body or like that this body is ours. But this body isn't ours for a few reasons. One, because we don't own the materials out of which it was made. Two, our parents were only marginally involved in the process that happened largely autonomously anyway. Three, the body is running itself at all times. You put food in the mouth, but only because it impelled you to do so. And then from there, it, it, it runs the show. Peristalsis takes the food down, this, the stomach acids digested, and you're not really actively doing any of these things. And when you get sick, and die, there's nothing you can really do about it. The body will return to its source or return to nature because it was not yours to keep. It was nature's to reclaim at any time she deems it fit to. So this is the beauty of the body is that we think it's ours, but really there's nothing that would make it ours. For instance, if I smelled roses in a neighbor's garden, I can't then go into her garden and say, can I have your roses? Or, or maybe I'm taking the roses now. And you'd say, why? And I would say, oh, they're mine. And she'd say, why are they yours? And I'd say, because I smelled them. See, smelling something doesn't make it mine. Experiencing something alone is not just grounds for claiming it. You see? Is that interesting? Oh, yes. And this is a very, very important point. Vimarsha is not Prakasha objectifying itself. It's a very important point. A subject can never be an object to itself. Even in the case of Vimarsha here, it's not that Prakasha is being an object to itself. Because the moment that happens, notice what you get, an infinite regress. If the subject can become an object, um, then that subject can also become an object to another subject. And then you get this chain of infinite regresses of eyes that no eye, that no eye, that no eye, that no eye. No such perception would become possible. So that's why it's very important that we have to clarify here that like you as a subject cannot know yourself in that way, in that objective way. So if you're experiencing the car, the car's coming and going. And if you're experiencing the body, the body is coming and going. But again, just because I'm experiencing it doesn't make it mine. The car comes, the car goes, I saw it. But upon that basis alone, I don't get to claim it. It's not my car, you see. I just experienced it. Similarly, I'm experiencing the body. But upon that grounds alone, I cannot claim it as mine. I just experienced it, you see. It's not mine. It's like we often joke, say you were in a train with someone and the two of you were going on a journey. And after five days, your partner got up to leave. And then you said to her, no, you can't go. And she says, why? Well, I own you now. Why do you own me? And then you say, well, you know, we've been together for a long time. I know a lot about you. You know a lot about me. Sometimes you make me happy. Sometimes you make me sad. Isn't that enough to say that I own you? Absolutely not. It isn't enough. You can't just claim that and then claim you own somebody. Similarly, you can't just say that just because you know about the body, just because you've been with it a long time, just because it delights you sometimes, it upsets you other times, that alone is not um, grounds, just grounds for claiming it as yours. So it's not your body. You are not the body, nor is it yours. It just appears like a car driving by you on the street. Similarly, the mind, it too, like the body, is a mass of sensations. But these are subtler sensations. Thoughts and emotions, to be sure, are a kind of sensation. But they're a very subtle kind of sensation. They come and they go, just like that. They're like smells or sounds. And notice, when I smell something or when I hear something, I just experience it. Even if it's something I don't like, I just experience it and I don't freak out about it. But it's not so when I experience bad thoughts, quote unquote bad thoughts. I make a whole personality around that sometimes. You know, but if we really look at it, bad thoughts, quote unquote, are just like a jarring car siren heard and then gone. Or like the smell of garbage or something on your walk to work. It comes and it goes. Similarly, thoughts, they come, they're there for a little while and they go away. Good and bad. It's like you're, you're on the bank of a river and in the river, you see maybe one, a dead body flows down. You know, in the Ganga, if you go near Manikarnika Ghat in Varanasi, sometimes you'll see a dead body flowing down. The turtles and the birds and all will be eating at it and it goes down. <laughs> and then you'll see a garland 
from the many temples along the banks of the Ganga. Just like that, the mind is a river of thoughts. Sometimes a corpse, sometimes a garland, sometimes a corpse, sometimes human feces, sometimes um, a, a, a coffin full of um, gold, a coffer full of gold coins. I don't know, just like lots of thoughts coming and going. <laughs> That's the human mind. But notice, you're experiencing it. And again, experiencing something doesn't make it yours. So this is not your body, nor is it your mind. No doubt you're experiencing it. But because you, the experiencer, are distinct from that which is experienced, and because the mind and body and world are all three of them experienced, you are not them. You know? Yeah, exactly. You see both the garland and the skull, exactly. <laughs> um, yes. So that's the thing, yeah, and, and, and Tripti Devi is making a very important point here. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, Prakityaiva cha karmani kriyanani sarvashaha. Nature alone is naturing. She alone is the doer. So when we actually step back and we look at things, we see that the mind, composed of the buddhi, intellect, ahankara, egoity, chitta, memory, and of course, manas, the basic mind stuff, you, the chitta, you see that all of these are just kind of acting. And they're acting upon the body and the body is acting upon the world and the world is acting upon the body and mind. And all of this is kind of just happening on its own. And you're somewhere in the background as the witness, as the observer, watching it all. Um, in Song of the Sannyas, Vivekananda says, one only exists, the witness, the soul. One only exists, the witness. In him is Maya dreaming all this dream. Or he appears, one only exists, the witness. He appears as nature, soul. So this jiva, this jagat, this Ishvara, God, world, soul, these are all appearances or manifestations of the one reality, which you are, the witness. But we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. So just thus far, all we've said is a Sankhyan point, that you, the soul, the witness, you, the, and I'm using soul here to mean pure Atman, the witness, you right now can verify this for yourself. You are not the body that grows old and gets sick and dies. You are not the body that was born. You're not the body that dies. You're not the mind that can be depressed or miserable or unhappy. You are that in which the mind and body appear like motes of dust suspended in a ray of sunlight. You are that light and you can feel it even now. Right? Isn't that so nice? Like just to step back and feel yourself as this, the light that shines upon your experience, which is itself transcendent to and quite distinct from that experience. So whatever happens to that upon which you are shining, you, the light, remain unaffected. This is true detachment. Detachment is not wearing an ochre cloth and wondering about, you know, and, and begging food. Although that's wonderful. But true detachment is really recognizing that you are detached already. You could never be attached. You are not the body. You are not the mind. You are the witness. You are the light that illumines these things like that. So this is how we can make the claim that, you know, Swamiji once said to a famous agnostic, he said to him, um, I, I know I can never die. So I'm in no hurry. It's an interesting thing. So there should, there should come into our experience now, having recognized this, a kind of peace, a sweetness, a relaxation. If I am not the body, then the cares and concerns and anxieties of the body are not mine. You know, And that's easy to say in health, I know. But when the body is ill, when it's sick, and when we feel most like identifying with it, then and there we must remember this. That this body that is sick, this body that is on its way out, you know, it's not me that should worry about it. And let the body have medicine or let it have rest or let it have oranges or what have you. Let it do the things that it needs to do to be healthy. But you shouldn't be too overly concerned with it. After all, what's it to you ultimately? You know, and the mind too. Let the mind do what it wants. What's it to you? You are that which illumines it all. This is the first claim. Now we go on from here. We say the second claim. Now this self that you feel yourself to be, distinct from the body, mind, and world, is it distinct from other selves? 
for instance, like right now, there are 50 or so people in the room, like 51 maybe or something. You look around the room and you say, okay, look at their fit. And, and there's Hel- Helen and there's Brent and there's Bhavani and there's Zaz and there's Rich. And you can you can name all of these people. You say Jericho and there's Bhagavad Gita, BG and Cassandra who just joined us. And you, see, you, look, you look around and you say, there are all of these people. So are they all unique and distinct and separate from one another? It would seem so from the Zoom screen or from the numbers presented. And Sankhya would say so. Sankhya would say each of us are unto ourselves a Purusha. And there are many different Purushas. But Advaita Vedanta is bold enough to claim, who says? After all, while you can show a difference between bodies, while you can show a difference between minds, can you really show a difference between Purushas? Like, for instance, take Julie. Um, where's Julie? I know Bhavani Devi is there. I'm looking for Julie. Um, take, 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 for instance, Bhavani Devi and 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 like live. Both of them look different. You could say that's the attributes to that body and that's the attributes to that body. So you could say the bodies are different, right? Obviously. And they're in different places in space-time. Actually, it's not a good example because both of you are in Canada. But let's say one of you was in India and the other one was in Morocco. You could say obviously they're different because you're in different space-time coordinates. And even if they were in the same room together, they could never be on the same like particular space-time coordinate. There's always going to be some distinction between the two bodies. And there's some like distinction in appearance also. So you can show two bodies as different. Then you can show two minds as different. You could say, Liv knows X, Bhavani knows Y. And X and Y are different from one another. They have different sets of memories, different expertise like that. So similarly, the mind, like the body, is formally different. But how can you say that about awareness? Awareness has no form. So you can't say this awareness or that awareness is different in form. Awareness is outside time. It's outside space. So you can't say that it's different temporally or spatially. Isn't that so beautiful? that There's no real way to show a distinction between any one Purusha and any other Purusha. And even if you say, well, you know, Jericho is experiencing here and I'm for Jericho there. And I'm experiencing Jericho there, whereas I'm experiencing myself here. Both these here and there sorts of notions, they're in the mind, actually, not in awareness. Awareness is equally aware of both here and there. So therefore, um, that doesn't really qualify as a difference either. So the claim that's being made now is that there is only one Purusha, only one existence. There is literally none else. And that one existence is outside of time. It's outside of space. It's outside of causality. It's absolutely infinite in that way. See, it's not limited by any other existence, nor is it limited by time, space, and causality. So all souls are really one soul. There's only one witness. Then the next question comes, what is the world that it's witnessing? Is that world different from it? Sankhya says, yes, that world is called Prakriti, and you are Purusha, and that Prakriti is quite a thing apart from Purusha. Right? Yeah, right? Exactly. That's exactly right. Now, this world is is not... Purusha, so says Sankhya. But then Advaita Vedanta challenges this and says, well, Purusha is certainly something other than Prakriti. But is Prakriti really something other than Purusha? I mean, think about it. Water is different from waves, but are waves different from water? Gold can certainly exist without the ornaments, but the gold ornament could never exist without the gold. So similarly, the claim is as follows. The world exists, but only because you exist. If you were not here to see it, it wouldn't be here to be seen. If you had no eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no skin, there would be no world for you, externally at least. And if you had no mind, there would be no internal world. As long as you have a mind, as long as you are endowed with senses, yeah, you see the world. This entire universe that you see, you're only seeing it because you're here to see it. See, it's so beautiful, this idea that like, it's shining, everything else shines. Awareness shining, everything is illumined. 
But without awareness, it wouldn't be. So think about it. Awareness is outside time, outside space, outside causality. And it's also the basis of all existence. Without gold, you couldn't have gold ornaments. Without clay, you couldn't have clay pots. Without water, you couldn't have waves as per the Chandogya Upanishad understanding or metaphors. So um, Ishan Deva is saying here, Brahman and Shakti are non-different. Brahma Shakti, Abed. The claim here, if you take Shakti to mean the manifestation, Svat Prakasha, the world that you see, the manifestation, then that manifestation is not different from the quote-unquote manifester, if I may use that language, or the ground of that manifestation. So awareness is in some sense, the very stuff of existence, if I can use sub such substantial language like that. So when you see a table, you're just seeing awareness. Awareness just appears in that moment as a table because there is no table distinct from awareness. And if you claimed that there existed a world outside of awareness, then such a world could never be verified by anyone. It would be even in principle unverifiable and therefore manifestly unscientific to claim. No such world as such exists apart from awareness. Only awareness is, and within that awareness is all this. All of these forms, this diversity, this magical display of phenomena. Okay, good. That was the claim. And I know we went through that really quickly because really it's a review and a rehash of so much that we've talked about over the last four years of our Monday night satsangs. So I know this stuff is not really new to you. Therefore, I just went through it quite quickly. But it's still so fresh and electrifying and wonderful. And it's like this beautiful journey, you see. You start with this kind of Nirvana Shatakam-esque um, claim. Manno buddhi ahankara chitani naham, nacha shrotra jive nacha grana netre, nacha vyoma bhumi na tejo navayu, shidananda ganna, like shidananda rupa shivoham shu. You say, I'm not the mind, I'm not the intellect, I'm not the ego, I'm not the mind stuff, I'm not the organs of sen sensation, nor am I the objects of sensation. You have to first say neti, 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 like that. Go up to the roof by, by putting the stairs behind you, pushing the body away, pushing the mind away. And then once you recognize the self, this inviolable, quiescent spirit, this pure awareness. Once you recognize that, ah, then you can reclaim the steps. Like Sri Ramakrishna Paramahansa, they said, once you get to the roof, then you recognize that the steps are made of the same material as the roof, brick, lime, dust, etc. Similarly, once you get to spirit, just through the simple method of intuitive recognition, then you recognize that everything that is, is spirit through and through. Ah, oh, what a thrilling, thrilling idea that all of this is God. And that God is your very own self. So again, we say God is that which is outside time, space, and causality. You, as, as the pure witness, as awareness, are outside time, space, and causality. God is the basis of the entire universe, the substratum upon which manifestations can occur. You are the substratum as awareness upon which all these forms appear and disappear. Isn't that beautiful? So by all accounts, by all definitions, you and God are one. There's no difference between you and God. You are that. So again, look at this beautiful claim. God is true. The universe is a dream. And by universe here is meant the pluralistic world that we posit as a separate or as an other, as a separate entity outside of me awareness. All of this is in me. All of this is me. God is true. The universe is a dream. Blessed am I that I know this. Blessed am I that I know this moment that I have been and shall be free for all eternity. That I know that I'm worshiping only myself. That no nature, no delusion had any hold on me. Vanish nature from me. Vanish these gods. Vanish worship, vanish superstitions, for I know myself. I am the infant. All these, Mr. Mrs. So-and-so, Mr. So-and-so, responsibility, happiness, misery have vanished. I am the infinite. How can there be death for me or birth? Whom shall I fear? I am the one. Shall I be afraid of myself? Who is to be afraid of whom? I am the one existence. Nothing else exists. I am everything. You know, and this claim opens the Bhairavastava. 
अभिनवगुप्त सिंह व्याप्ताचार चार भाव विशेषम चिन्मेकनिम भैरवनाता अनाथम शारण्यम तन्माया चिता तया हृदय वंदे बाय एक्सपेंडिंग माय माइंड तन्माया चिता माय माइंड इज बिकम प्रवेडेड बाय यू लॉर्ड भैरव यू हु आर द लॉर्ड ऑफ द लॉर्डलेस यू हु आर कॉन्शियसनेस माय वेरी ओन नॉन ड्यूअल अनएंडिंग एंड विदाउट अ बिगिनिंग that non dual consciousness is all pervasive as all things moving and unmoving and tameva tvamcha mahesha sadaiva mamatma abhinava gupta says in the second verse that you lord shiva and me are one i i sada i'm ever sada eva mamatma my atman my atman mamatma is ever one with you tvamcha mahesha you god are me self it's a beautiful claim and shortly before that he says bhati oh red is here oh i'm so happy you're here red yes i missed you very much bye bye oh mom bhati mamma tvad anugraha shaktiya by your grace by the energy of your grace it's been revealed unto me that this entire world is just shining forth within me it just oh oh it's it's an appearance in me it's a shining forth in me by your grace that's been revealed so it's a wonderful thing this play between duality and non-duality and this claim that you can be devoted thoroughly and saturated with the energy of love and the and the joy of devotion for this god who is recognized as none other than the self nearer to you than you are to yourself dearer to you than you are to yourself so dear in fact that you have no other name for it but i or me or self oh what a claim okay so that's the claim that's advaita vedanta in theory now let's look at it in practice and by the way when i say advaita vedanta you'll see that i kind of mean swami ji's advaita because here there's no real room for maya not really um rather this whole world is god it just hasn't been recognized as such and the whole question is about deification and it's not deification as much as recognizing the inherent divinity in all things that's what needs to be done so let's move on now let's see how we practice this it's only a question of remembering your true nature it is not salvation by work oh i should mention that in the bhairava stava also there's that powerful claim satmani tvaye satmani gate tvai nate you know like he says trasa vidayishu karma ganeshu he says i i have nothing to be afraid of because fear can only exist when there's duality if there's nothing other than me what then can i be afraid of you see as if everything is me i can't be afraid of me not really at least <laughs> okay let's move on uh it is only a question of remembering your true nature it is not salvation by work do you get salvation you are already free go on saying i am free never mind if the next moment delusion comes and says um i am bound dehypnotize the whole thing this truth is first to be heard here's the practice this is called shravana this truth is first to be heard hear it first and now the next practice think on it day and night fill the mind with it day and night i am it i am the lord of the universe never was there any delusion this is the second step called manana think about it contemplate it question it push against it you know meditate and then the next step nididhyasana meditate upon it with all the strength of the mind till you actually see these walls houses everything melt away until body everything vanishes Swamiji is perhaps you're referring to a very real experience that he had through the touch of his guru through his guru's grace through shaktipata he had this experience where literally all the trees and tables and everything vanished 
all the walls and houses and buildings all vanished. And he had this mystical experience, so to speak. So what Swamiji is suggesting here is that through Nididhyasana, through meditating on this truth, which you've heard and contemplated upon for some time, with all the strength of your mind, eventually you'll have some kind of experience. And it could be right here, right now. This experience of realizing that there were no tables or walls or houses, all of them melt away as it were, as swiftly as the, the snake melts away when the rope is perceived, like that, in a flash. Um, and then he goes on to say, uh, everything will melt away until body, everything vanishes. I will stand alone. I am the one. Struggle on. Who cares? We want to be free. We, don't, we do not want any powers. Um, worlds we renounce. Heavens we renounce. Hells we renounce. What do I care about all these powers and this and that? What do I care if the mind is controlled or uncontrolled? Let it run on. What of that? I am not the mind. Let it go on. Interesting. Very interesting point here. The sun shines on the just and the unjust. Is God touched by the defective character of anyone? I am he. Whatever my mind does, I am not touched. The sun is not touched by shining on filthy places. I am existence. This is the religion of non-dual philosophy. It is difficult. Struggle on. Down with all superstitions. Neither teachers nor scriptures nor gods exist. Down with temples, with priests, with gods, with incarnations, with God himself. I am all the God that ever existed. There, stand up, philosophers. No fear. Speak no more of God and the superstitions of the world. Truth alone triumphs. And this is true. I am the infinite. Just see what it takes to become a philosopher. This is the path of jnana yoga, the way through knowledge. The other paths are easy, slow, but this is pure strength of mind. No weakling can follow this path of knowledge. You must be able to say, I am the soul, the ever free. I never was bound. Time is in me, not I in time. God was born in my mind. God the Father, Father of the universe. He is created by me in my own mind. Do you call yourself philosophers? Show it. Think of this, talk of this, and help each other in this path. Give up all superstition. <laughs> ah, do you see what I mean? It's the most intoxicating jnana, pure jnana, no nonsense jnana, telling it like it is. Okay, so this is quite a huge claim. Let me just, just, just for a few moments now, reflect a little bit upon it. Swamiji was very fond of saying things like, you know, there's one very... Um, Profound statement that he makes. Oh, Ayurvedic copper water bottles. Cheers. <laughs> Don't forget to get these at the ashram gift stop on the way out. <laughs> Your sponsorship works. Oh, hey, look. Yeah, it works now. <laughs> you would think that I've never used Zoom before, but it's been since COVID. So all my settings reset. Yeah. Oh, I see. First I see. impressions are everything, aren't they? <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> I'm so glad to be here amongst all of you. Seriously, I'm just blessed to be here. Um, you're all amazing. I'm sure I'm just amongst just yogis on on levels that I cannot comprehend. So just very humbled to be here. I feel that all the time. So I look at these people and I'm like intimidated. I'm like, oh my God, I have to tell these people this thing? Like, <laughs> yeah. oh. Yes, welcome, welcome. But yes, cheers to copper waterfall. <laughs> But um, what is the idea? So it's like, let's just qualify this a little bit. Um, he would say things sometimes, incendiary things, like it'd be better to play football than to read the Gita, stuff like that. What did he mean? You know, this is kind of, he was the Bhakta par excellence. He was a meditator par excellence. How do you understand these claims of his? So 
Jnana yoga, arguably, is the be-all, end-all. According to Swami Vivekananda, the path of the philosopher is direct. You just have to stand up, claim that you are Brahman, and live and die by that claim. And it takes tremendous, I would argue, stubbornness. And that stubbornness can only come from conviction. So when you're convinced about something, even when it doesn't feel true in your moment, you must stand up in the light of your conviction. You must say, I know the ideal. I know the truth. And even if it's hard to live according to that truth now, even if it doesn't feel true on the level of the body and mind, it doesn't change that it is true. That's a remarkable thing. And so it's like if in the very jaws of death, you know, you should cry out, Soham, I am that. When the lion catches hold of you and drags you out of your hut and into the forest, you should trail off into the night with constant exuberant shouts of Soham, Soham, Soham. That's an actual story. Like it actually happened. There was a sadhu who was grabbed by a tiger and dragged into the forest. And the other monks in that hermitage could hear him shouting into the night. And that sound trailed off into silence. I am that. I am that. I am that. In the literal jaws of death, you must be able to say, I am that. In the face of any and all temptation, in the face of any and all fear, you must be able to say, I am that. It's a profound statement. And it's a statement premised upon truth. So you must hear the truth, med- contemplate upon it, and meditate upon it with every strength of your mind until it becomes a lived experience, until the very walls and houses and everything melt away. And he says, it's difficult, but struggle on. Who cares? He says, what a profound thing. So how does this apply? And just to close this idea about bhakti, raja, karma, how does this apply to all of this? It seems like primarily what Swami Vivekananda's jnana is premised upon is conviction that leads to fearlessness and strength. That's the first thing. How to jnana like Vivekananda be fearless? And that fearlessness comes from recognizing your innate divinity. This was the, the centerpiece of Vivekananda's message, the innate divinity of the human soul. So he would argue that you are by nature strong. And Swami Medanandaji yesterday shared a nice story. Um, it was of Swami, Swami Vivekananda crossing a river with some of his female disciples. And he just, they got to a river and he just skipped across the rocks. And he got to the other side. And some of his female disciples objected. They said, that wasn't very chivalrous of you, Swami. You just skipped across the lake and you didn't even help us. And he looks back and he said, and he said, that's not very chivalrous of you. Look, what is your chivalry but naked lust? He was very against it, this idea of chivalry. Why? Because he saw women as equals. The idea is that he, he didn't feel like women were women and didn't feel like men were men. He saw everyone and treated them on the level of the Atman. And when you were with Vivekananda, by the way, you never felt awed by his presence in the sense that you never felt small. Conversely, when you were with him, you felt huge. You felt powerful. You felt divine because he saw you as that. You know, when Vivekananda met you, he wouldn't be looking at you as a woman or as a man or as a person, as a child even. He would look at you and see you for what you are until you yourself saw yourself that way. You are the Atman of infinite strength. Upon your back rests this entire universe. What can't you do? So here I want to say that his notion of the Atman is a little distinct from the Advaita Vedanta notion. There, as I said last week, Brahman is Nishkriya Nishkama. Brahman is without action, without uh, movement. It's, it's Nishchala. It's, it's totally quiescent. Shanta Brahma. Totally still, right? Whereas here, Vivekananda's idea of non-duality is one full of action and manifestation and power. Once you recognize that you are the self, you should also recognize that the whole world is your playground. There's nothing unopened to you. You can do whatever you want. You can yourself be a Vivekananda and shake the whole world to its foundations with your message. You can do whatever. You can establish a business empire if you wanted. He said, teach this to the fishermen. They'll be better fishermen. Whatever you want to do. And so action, you know, um, power, 
These are things that Vivekananda felt were innate to the self, to the soul. And so this puts his version of Vedanta maybe a little bit more in line with that tantric non-duality, where Brahma or Shakti Abed. Here, Shakti means not just the world, but the power by which the world is manifested. So you are powerful because Brahman is powerful and you are that. Brahman is inseparable from its Shakti. You are literally Shakti, for you are the Brahman in whom Shakti resides. Or, or who is Shakti when manifesting? See, So that's the first thing. Innate divinity of the soul. That's the, the centerpiece of Vivekananda's jnana, which should give you peerlessness. Okay. So how do jnana like Vivekananda, we could say two things. One, once you recognize your innate divinity, it should give you confidence and strength and of course, fearlessness. Now, Abhinava Gupta in his Bhairavastava, you see he's, and I'm almost going to wrap up getting there. You'll see that he's constantly referring to the cremation ground. Mrityur yamantaka karma pishachaya nata namostu Gupta is saying, I don't fear all of these things anymore. I don't fear karma. I don't fear the angel of death. I don't fear the god of death, Yama. I don't fear um, death. I don't fear any of these things because I've worshipped you, my Lord. You know, he's saying, Bishana Bhairava Shakti Mayosmi. I have been pervaded by the energy of the terrifying Bhairava. Therefore, Antaka mam prati madrishamanem. You angel of death, don't look at me with frightful eyes. Your gaze can do me no harm. For I am one with the energy of the terrifying Bhairava. See, recognizing that you are Shiva, that you are Brahman, and that you are without death. You weren't born with this body, nor will you die with the death of this body. Knowing this, you should become fearless. And once Vivekananda, he was running from a group of monkeys, a troop of monkeys. What do you call it? A gang, a troop. He was running from a troop of monkeys. Don't ask, it's somewhat of a story. But Asadu saw him running away from these monkeys and said to him, turn around and face the brutes. Something like that. And Vivekananda, who's running from the monkeys, something clicked. And he was like, oh yeah. He stopped, he turned around, and he made like a face at the monkeys. And true enough, all these very belligerent Banaras monkeys, and if you've been to Varanasi, they're very belligerent. They all ran away. Upon seeing the Swami's scowling face and strength and resolution, the, the monkeys all ran away. And he saw in that a profound lesson which would reverberate through the rest of his teachings. Face the brutes. Look at the horrors of life. Like, like actually look at it and realize that you are beyond it. And this brings me in closing to the conversation about Kali and what Bhakti really looks like in the context of this Jnana infusion. Kali, when you look at her, it's ideally with the understanding that she is everything. She is not just the good and the sweet and the merry. She is that too, no doubt. But she's inclusive of even the bad, the miserable, the horrors of the world. You know, in um, Let Mother Shyama Dance There, one of Swami Vivekananda's Bengali poems, he says, Oh, Mother, they take away your sword and in its place they place a flute. They shrink back in fear and say, It is only the demons that Mother kills. It's like all of us refuse to look at the world. We refuse to look at that side of mother, choosing to clothe her in a sari or take away her sword or say that she's good ultimately. She's not. She's both good and bad and beyond these two things. Right? She's Mahadevi Mahasuri. So what is it to be a Kali Bhakta? It's to love unconditionally. I was speaking to this on Friday, but the idea is that to love unconditionally, I must have no desire and no fear. Because if I have any desire or any fear, when I go to God, I will go to God with those. When I go to God, I would desire that God be nice to me. And I'd be afraid for God to show her 
scowl or fearsome face to me. But you see, all that desire and all that fear, ultimately it stems from identifying with this body and mind. If I think I am this body and I am this mind, I have many things to desire and many things to fear. As long as that is true of me, it cannot be true love that I bring to God. That's not bhakti actually. That's shopkeeping. Most of us, when we talk about devotion, we're talking about a kind of contractual, conditional arrangement that we've set up with God. God, I'll do your pujas. I'll be nice to you, but you better be nice to me. And because I'm a devotee, I expect certain things from you. I expect some favor. I expect to be, I don't know, financially enumerated. I expect people to like me. I expect my life to go well. After all, I'm a bhakta. Is this not how we are? When we go to God, we go with an expectation because we do have desires. And when we go to God, we often go with a bit of fear. And fear is the seed of superstitionalism. Or if you mess up your puja, she'll come and smite you. Maybe, but what's that to me if I know I'm not the body and not the mind? You know, but if I think I'm the body and mind, then all these things, I'll be so afraid of doing the wrong thing or I'll feel guilty or shameful. There'll all be these ideas, you know, of sin or something like that. It's a sin to call you sinners. It is a standing libel on human nature. A Hindu refuses to call you a sinner. You are children of immortal bliss. Swami would say that. But when he said that, it was because you are that light, which is not made filthy by shining upon filthy things. And it's true. Maybe if you mess up the puja, God will smite you. Maybe, right? I'm not going to say that's not true. Maybe it is. But what's it to you? That's the claim, you see. What's it to you? When you're beyond fear, when you're beyond desire, and then you approach God, ah, that is something resembling bhakti, true devotion. That's one understanding. The way to approach bhakti through jnana is like this. By recognizing you're not the body and mind, you can love unconditionally, and therefore your bhakti will be all the more perfect. It will be sincere bhakti, not sentimentalism or superstitionalism or any of that. Put the fear of God from your mind. You know, forget about it. Don't fear God. Nor should you even love God in the way we typically love God. Once, Swamiji, he, when he was a young boy, he would go and see Ramakrishna. And for a period of time, Ramakrishna refused to look at him even, refused to talk to him. But he kept coming. And Ramakrishna said, why do you keep coming even though I barely look at you? And he said, I just come to see you. You know, I don't care what you think of me. I just love you. And so I'm here. Similarly, can we look to God and say, even as you kill me, I love you? Now that's true devotion. That's real satisfying love, you know. A love that says, God, I don't need you to be any way other than what you are. I will love you in whatever sorrow you visit me in, be it sorrow or misery or death. Therefore, in Kali, the mother, Swami Vivekananda says, he who misery loves, he who hugs death, he who dances destructions dance, to him the mother comes. I'm paraphrasing a bit. But you have to love misery and sorrow and death and pain and destruction. Not because you're a goth and, you know, like you listen to a lot of heavy metal and you have exclusively black nail polish. No, I mean, maybe. But I mean in a deeper way than just that. It's not a morbid attraction or fascination with death. It's just the recognition that there's no death for you. And so God can do whatever she damn well please and you'll love her all the same. Yeah, yeah, it's true. We are <laughs> Kali Bhaktas. But so um, that sentiment that as a Kali Bhakta, you're invited now to look at God in a slightly more capacious way than she's typically presented in other forms. And ideally, then you can see beyond good and bad to that God, which is um, pure awareness, which you are. So that's the first thing. The second thing is if you truly love, then eventually the distance between you and your beloved closes and closes and closes. Swami Ashokananda often um, emphasizes this point. If you are a true bhakta, you will eventually become a non-dualist. Because as a true bhakta, you're always trying to get closer to your beloved until you and your beloved ultimately merge. It, you just can't help it. You know, you're getting closer and closer and closer. Even if you're trying to maintain a bit of separation, the magnetism and draw of that God who is really your own self, you can't resist it. You, may, you might try to sip the honey from the edge of the cup, but soon you'll sip more and more and more and you'll fall over the edge of the cup, drop into the honey and become one with the syrup. 
You see? So if you truly love God, the, the ultimate outcome is that the moth will go into the fire eventually, sooner or later. You as a bhakta must become one with God. Non-duality is the final stage of bhakti, but it's also the beginning stage of bhakti. You cannot love until you come to um, uh, become, until you become fearless and desireless, which can only come through jnana. Right now, right here, you can have it. But more than this, to love God, you must be like God. To, if I am to love you, I should be your equal, right? Like if I really want to love you, say you're like really smart, but I'm not on your intellectual level. I can't really love you. I could sort of, but I wouldn't really understand you. And so I couldn't love you in your fullest, you see. If you're a great musician, I should be a great musician too. Then I can really love you. I can meet you on that level. Similarly, if you want to love God, you better damn well be God. For only then, as an equal, can you love God. And jnana gives you that. It shows you that you are that God which you're worshipping, and now God can really worship God. So none of this Vaishnava, he used to call this like Vaishnava sentimentalism. It's like, no, he's not speaking against Vaishnavas. He's just speaking against an attitude that he found very predominant in Bengal of this attitude like, I'm nothing God. I'm nothing. I'm a loser. I'm a wimp. I'm just going to whine and grovel before you. What kind of a bhakti is that? Even like your very own mother will look at that and say, oh, you know, even your own mother will lose respect for you. She won't stop loving you, but she might find it hard to respect you when you're rolling around the floor groveling and being a loser child. You know, your mother is more likely to love you when you stand up tall and say, I'm the shit and I love you as the shit. Like in your romantic relationships, you want your partner to stand on their own two feet and be a person and be strong in themselves and not really need you. And then that love can be in freedom. Otherwise, it's a cloistering, claustrophobic kind of love. If their entire emotional well-being depends upon you, and at one word they can unravel, oh, you won't stay with them for long. It's a <laughs> kind of despicable sort of thing, you know? You have to respect the person you love. Similarly, to, to really be a respectable lover to God, you have to really understand your own strength. So all of these, I think, can be understood in the context of shakta or, or, or shaiva, non-dual bhakti. Okay. Now, what about meditation? Certainly, if you want to meditate, you need tremendous and indomitable strength to just show up to the mat day after day after day and to sit there for one hour or two hours or three hours or however long you say you're going to sit. You have to have strength to make it to the end. You know, your mind is going to try to externalize itself and it's going to try to take you off your seat. But to, to have meditation, you must have resolve. And to have resolve, that sankalpa, it takes strength. And where does that strength come if not in the from the recognition of your true nature as Atman? Okay, one last thing, karma yoga. So we did bhakti, we did meditation. Now, last thing, karma yoga. Karma yoga, Swami Vivekananda seems to argue, is the natural byproduct and consequence of jnana. Because through jnana, you realize that God is everyone and everything, right? So if somebody is hungry, it's because God in that person is hungry. So by feeding that person, by doing some charity work, you're not actually helping them. You're serving God, who in them is in that moment manifesting as a supposedly hungry person. It's not that God needs your help. God is God. God is beyond all need and want and whatever. But for fun, God seems to be playing in this way, manifesting as a hungry person, giving you the opportunity to do a puja, to worship by bringing the food to her. It's a wonderful thing that God, if God is indeed everything, then whatever work you do in the world is puja, is worship. But notice also that when you're no longer full of desire and full of fear, when you feel full of strength, when you feel confident, suddenly there's this huge energy that is freed up. Energy that would otherwise be devoured by the ego and trying to protect itself and, you know, clutch at this and cling to that. All of that energy, which otherwise was being expended in this project of self-defense, in the project of ego reification, that energy is now freed up. That energy demands expression. And that expression will be selfless service of everyone, everywhere, recognizing them as God. Isn't that beautiful? 
Like once you know you are not the body and mind, then from the body and mind will come tremendous work for the benefit of all beings. It's almost like if you give the body and mind back to nature, she'll say, I'll take it from here, kid. And then she'll give the body and mind wholly to the service of humanity. That's just the way nature is. She, she seems to adore sacrifice. If you sacrifice your body and mind to her, she will use it, utilize it to the fullest and then cast it aside. And all the while you are full of peace and joy. See, so what is it to do karma yoga? It's to do it in a spirit of tremendous detachment, tremendous inner relaxation. You know you're not the body and mind. You know you have nothing to gain or nothing to lose from any action. Therefore act, therefore worship. That's the most um, practical form of Vedanta, the most obvious expression of your insight. So how do you know a person has attained this truth? Because they're always fearless, always peaceful, always joyful, but also because they're always full of compassion for their fellow beings. They're always serving, not out of a sense of like, oh, I need to help the world, just out of like a matter of fact recognition that the self is in all beings and all beings are in the self. So how can they help? I mean, just like when you're hungry, you go to the kitchen and eat. Just like that, you should bring food to the hungry. When you're sick, you go and get some medicine. Just like that, you should bring medicine to the sick because now you recognize yourself in all beings and all beings in yourself. Charity, service, help, all of these should be natural outpourings of your own innate fullness, your innate repose in the self, you see. So what Swami Vivekananda, in conclusion, seems to be indicating is that spiritual life cannot even begin without strength. You must believe in yourself first. He said once that, you know, atheism used to be not believing in God. But I say the real atheism is not believing in yourself. He said, you Hindus believe in your 33 millions of gods. But what's the point if you don't believe in yourself first? Therefore, he said, don't say God. Don't say thou. These things debilitate you by putting the onus on someone else. If you're bad, it's because the devil made you do it. If, if, you know, if you want to be saved, Jesus has to save you. No, forget that. Stand up, be strong and say, I am the divine. And when you can say that, when you can really feel that, when your very blood tingles with the energy of that, then and then alone can you be a true sadhaka. Only then can you meditate. Only then can you do selfless work in a spirit of worship. Only then can you really love God. For at that point, you will be God. So may God love God for the sake of God, knowing that all this is verily God. One alone exists without a second. And verily, thou art that. Om Shanti 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 Hare Om Tatsat Shri Ramakrishna Sarada Vivekanandarpanam Astu Om Peace, Peace, Peace. May this be an offering to my teacher. Hara Hara Mahadeva.